Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we begin our Earth Week coverage by bringing you Hoodwinked in the Hot House, Part 2, Frontline Voices of Indigenous Resistance Beyond Climate Fault Solutions. You will hear Indigenous organizers from frontline communities who are disproportionately impacted by what they say are false solutions to the climate crisis. From the Anishinaabe communities in Canada fighting the contamination of water, to Diné communities in the southwest of the United States. They will describe what they say are false climate solutions, including nuclear power, mega dams and fracking and more, all of which cause displacement, contamination of land, food and water and disaster in frontline communities worldwide. Speakers are Candy White of the Indigenous Environmental Network, Leona Morgan of Dene No Nukes, and Lucienne Wabanoik of the Anishinaabeg tribe and Innu First Nations. They will share with you stories about their efforts to stop the ongoing impacts of false climate solutions, such as nuclear power and radioactive waste dumps, enhanced oil recovery for fracking, tree plantations, and hydroelectric plants and mega dams. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Russia has ratcheted up its battle for control of Ukraine's eastern industrial heartland. The long-anticipated strike on the Donbass is described as a new phase of Russia's war in Ukraine. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. This uh, operation in the east of Ukraine uh, is uh, uh, aimed, as was announced from the very beginning, to fully liberate the Donetsk and Lugansk republics. And this operation uh, will, will continue. It is beginning, uh, I mean, another stage of this operation is beginning. Uh, and I'm sure this will be uh, a very important moment of this entire special operation. The new phase includes increased assaults on cities and towns along a front hundreds of miles long. If successful, the Donbass offensive would give President Vladimir Putin a vital piece of Ukraine and a badly needed victory after withdrawing from the capital, Kiev. Reuters is reporting Russia's captured the city of Kremina. Luhansk's regional governor says Ukrainian troops withdrew. Despite that loss, Ukraine's military says it's thwarted a number of attacks in the region. Alexander Shitpun is Ukraine's armed forces spokesperson. His comments were translated by Al Jazeera. In the Donetsk and Luhansk regions, Ukraine's defenders repelled seven enemy attacks. We destroyed 10 tanks, 18 armored units, and eight vehicles, one artillery system, and a mortar unit. 
Ukraine's air force has hit seven targets the day before, one plane, four UAVs and two cruise missiles. Russia's defense minister has accused the U.S. and its allies of doing everything to drag out its war in Ukraine by supporting Kiev with arms. In recent weeks, Russian forces have regrouped in preparation for an all-out offensive in the Donbass. Moscow-backed separatists have been fighting Ukrainian forces in the region for the past eight years. British officials, meanwhile, say the next phase of the war in Ukraine is likely to be an attritional conflict that could last several months. The growing crisis over food insecurity and skyrocketing food prices is taking center stage as members of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank prepare to meet in Washington. The loss of commodities due to Russia's war against Ukraine is being blamed for the food calamity. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is convening a meeting today with global leaders to call on international financial institutions to accelerate and deepen their response to countries affected by food issues. Russia and Ukraine produce 14 percent of the world's wheat supply. A March United Nations food report said the global number of undernourished people could increase by 8 million to 13 million people into 2023. A federal judge in Florida struck down the national mask mandate on airplanes and mass transit Monday. The judge's decision frees airlines, airports and mass transit systems to make their own decisions about mask requirements, resulting in a mix of responses to the ruling. The major airlines switched to a mask optional policy. The Transportation Security Administration said Monday night it will no longer enforce the mask requirement. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki criticized the ruling. CDC recommended continuing the order for additional time, two weeks, uh, to be able to assess the latest science in keeping with its responsibility to protect the American people. So this is obviously a disappointing decision. The CDC continues recommending wearing a mask in public transit. Florida District Judge Catherine Kimball Mazel ruled the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention had overstepped its authority and failed to follow proper rulemaking procedures. Mazel, a 35-year-old, was rated as not qualified by the American Bar Association when former President Donald Trump appointed her in 2020. The Republican-controlled Senate confirmed her anyways. The Biden administration says the U.S. is barring anti-satellite missile testing. It's a move the White House officials say is meant to underscore their hope of establishing new norms for military action in space. The U.S. has sharply criticized Russia and China for conducting anti-satellite missile tests. Vice President Kamala Harris highlighted the Biden administration's move during a speech Monday night at Vandenberg Space Force Base in California. These weapons are intended to deny the United States our ability to use our space capabilities by disrupting, destroying our satellites, satellites which are critical to our national security. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has declared a local state of emergency after floods killed an estimated 450 people and left dozens missing. An Afghan police spokesperson says explosives targeting educational institutions in Kabul have killed at least six civilians and injured 17 others. I'm Christina Onestead, reporting for Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines. So-called climate solutions, which some say are false solutions, such as nuclear power, hydropower, biofuel, fracking, and enhanced oil recovery, 
carbon offsets, carbon capture, biodiversity offsets, and nature-based solutions are put forward by corporations and NGOs alike as ways to combat climate change that also boost the economy. These so-named climate solutions are rooted in growth and profit and the voices you will hear on today's show make the case that these are false solutions that will not solve the climate crisis but will continue to enact violence on the natural world and on frontline communities across the globe. They will focus on indigenous organizations that are contributing to movements for systemic change and climate justice led by frontline communities and they say nurtured through processes of resistance, of resurgence, and decolonization. Let us now go to Hoodwinked in the Hot House Part 2, Frontline Voices of Indigenous Resistance Beyond Climate False Solutions. Hello, relatives. My name is Eagle Woman. I am Mandan Herata Arikra from so-called North Dakota in the so-called United States of America, also known as Turtle Island. I am calling in today from what some people call Crow Country in the state of Montana, also known as Absoluta Territory. And I'm very honored to be here today representing myself and also the work I do with the Indigenous Environmental Network. It's very difficult to answer this question in such a short time frame, but I will do so showing pictures of my lived experience as a Mandan Herata Rikara woman who grew up on a reservation in North Dakota that has had to deal with a lot. And this is a story that encompasses a lot of our indigenous populations in the United States and Canada, and why we find ourselves in the situations that we find ourselves in now, when it comes to the climate crisis and when it comes to fossil fuel development. So I'm hoping to give an understanding of a bigger picture of our experiences as people who ma ditugua long time ago lived on the land we relied on the land we lived in earth lodge villages along the waters because we were farmers we grew corn we grew squash we, we grew beans and our men even tended their own tobacco we had a lifestyle in which our villages were connected and took care of each other as peoples together in a, in a whole family a whole village of a community and what happened was smallpox came and colonization began happening. And we started seeing all of these things where other tribes were being pushed from the East Coast to the Midwest and onward as colonization came to the now United States. And that's when we started getting put into reservations. The Mandan, Herata, and Rikra nations, three separate nations were put together on one reservations because our numbers had been so decimated by smallpox. And we were so similar that we were now known as the three affiliated tribes by the federal government. Instead of earth lodges, we then began living in structures that were built for us by white men. My reservation is called Fort Berthold. That's because it was actually a fort that we weren't allowed to leave. We were placed on this land, and at that time it was 12 million acres. It has, over the years, been seceded by presidential and executive orders to just under 1 million acres where it is today. They put us here because they figured there wasn't anything here. <laughs> there was no resources, it wasn't valuable land. Flooding in St. Louis and Missouri that was happening because they were mismanaging their waterways started happening, so a series of dams was built. Every single dam was built below a reservation 
mine Fort Berthold was flooded by the Garrison Dam. It was the largest earthen construction project, and by the time our tribal chairman signed on to this project, he's there crying this picture, our chairman George Gillette, they were already $60 million into the construction by the time we agreed to it. So that was the first thing that happened. First it was the reservation, and then we were forced off of our bottom lands, which was where all of our class one and class two agricultural lands were flooded. We were forced onto the high ground. That's when we became farmers. Our rancher, they told us you have to have cattle. Your agricultural lands are flooded and you're gonna go live on the high ground. And then another assault came in the form of the fossil fuel industry. North Dakota is one of the highest, largest lignite coal states in the country. So as a child, I had heard from my grandparents how we had been displaced. And then I started to get taught in school how it was so important for me to go into the fossil fuel industry. So here I am as a seventh grader standing in a dump of one of these large industry places. Here we are on a reservation where they put us thinking there was nothing there, but then it turned out we had coal. It turned out we had oil. And in North Dakota, they're fracking for the oil, not the natural gas. The natural gas is actually a byproduct. And so we started seeing all of these rigs popping up all over. Places where my grandma used to fast, like this place were no longer available to us. We were seeing these in our wheat fields, these signs that said industrial zoned. No longer were we the breadbasket of the country to feed the rest of the country. We're now a site where trucks infiltrate our roads, where they take over our cisterns and our waterways, where they kill people and have killed people in accidents, running on the roads, running people over, and have dumped their frack water right onto the highways. And they have done this all unjustly and as a result of a system of the way our reservation was set up and the jurisdiction laws between native people and non-native people were set up so there's a history here of this setting up of indigenous peoples so that when accidents occur like this spill nothing is done the spill in 2014 has contaminated our land it's still contaminated we had to do our own studies to find out that this earth is still radioactive they put little sandbags out when we have spills and say this is going to protect our waterways. Yeah, our water has blue-green algae blooms killing our fish and this is what our people drink. This is actual water taking out one mile from our water intake plant. No doctoring, this was blue. And they told us it's fine. Little did we know that they're toxic blue-green algae blooms. You shouldn't drink the water, you shouldn't swim in the water, which we were. And then we started having fish kills. Now, North Dakota is in the central part Midwest, right in the middle of Turtle Island. It's the geographic central of North America. We're very rural. So these lights here, those aren't lights, they're flares. They're flaring the natural gas because it wasn't economically viable for them to capture the natural gas. So when they talk about natural gas as a bridge fuel and you see issues like in Texas, when water is being shut down, power is being shut down, they're saying, oh, what are we going to do? We have no energy. They're just flaring all this natural gas even, not even capturing it because it's not economically viable to them. We're breathing this in. Our children are having asthmas, cancers. All of our people are sick because of the carcinogens, which are cancer-causing. And these are just a few that come along with fracking. These things that we breathe every day, that go into our water, that go into our soil, which we grow our food in every single day, happening to our communities. Yet there's a social aspect of the man camps that came and they just 
started to destroy our communities. It's all about jobs, they say. We started seeing violence against our women, rape. We started seeing missing and murdered indigenous women increasing, violence on the rise. We started seeing drugs. We are left with this increased violence in our communities as a result of this colonized world, that capitalism that brought us to this point, to where our own leaders say, we fought against the reservation and we lost. We fought against our lands being flooded and we lost. We fought against the coal and we lost. And so why not, if you can't beat them, join them. And so a lot of our leaders in Indian country today are in this struggle of having to depend on either becoming economically dependent on our own cultural destruction. Hi, uh, thank you so much, Candy, for sharing your story. I'm, I've actually never heard all of that from you. And so I'm just going to do the same and introduce myself and, and share a little bit of my story. And hello, everyone. I am Dinette, and my people are from, as it says, the Southwest Turtle Island. So specifically what we called today so-called New Mexico. Uh, my family's from northwestern New Mexico and our people, especially in what's called the Grants Mineral District or the Grants Mineral Belt, have been severely impacted by uranium mining, which a lot of people know about. So I'm going to just show some slides that hopefully will explain very clearly for everybody so you can all explain to your networks uh, what I'm going to share about why nuclear is a false solution. This is a, a definition that we put together from several different sources and, and ultimately we're just explaining how nuclear colonialism is a continuation of the systematic and systemic dispossession of indigenous lands or exploitation of resources in the sense minerals and uranium and then of course the continued oppression of indigenous peoples worldwide. So I don't know how many of you know but uranium mining affects indigenous people mostly. I think we estimate about 70% of the time it's impacting indigenous peoples and then that's not even to mention processing and the fuel fabrication and then and then the weapons testing which there was a lot of in the united states i don't think folks know there's been over a thousand tests on western shoshone lands in nevada so essentially if you look at it that way we are all downwinders we are all impacted by nuclear colonialism the doctrine of discovery 1493 so this is kind of like where i think it really started and then fast forwarding well two big things the Dawes Act, so the allotment, division of lands, divide and conquer stuff. That's still impacting us today in uranium country, mostly in checkerboard areas, and it's having really intense implications in communities where there's allotments and there's fracking. And then so that was the Dawes Act in the 1860s, and then 1872 mining law was basically what allowed all of the gold mining, silver, copper, lead, molybdenum, uranium. So this was a law that basically allowed free-for-all for you know, encouraging white settler colonialism, a way to take ownership of land, stealing land, legalizing the theft of land through mineral resource extraction. So then moving forward, we have the Atomic Energy Commission of the Manhattan Project. And that's really what prompted a lot of the development of uranium as a weapon. And then later we have uranium being used as uh, for nuclear energy. The bottom line is nuclear energy and nuclear weapons both come from uranium. We need to stop taking uranium out of the ground. And I just want to challenge everyone whenever we talk about fossil fuels and, and all of these things, extraction, leave it in the ground. Please, please, I ask everyone to also include uranium and nuclear. Just because uranium is not a fossil fuel, we kind of get left out. 
but we really need your support out there to remember no fossil fuels keep it in the ground as well as uranium and no nuclear and this is why just to give you some background where i'm coming from southwestern part of the united states we call this the four corners area albuquerque new mexico to be very frank i am not a frontline community i never claim to be a frontline community but i am an indigenous activist whose family has been hurt by uranium so lots of cancers lots of problems deaths and things like that in my family as well as in the community today ongoing which is why we need to pass rica amendments methane spot okay resource colonialism on navajo we had a lot of coal mining that's beginning to shut down but we have a lot of issues with that and I just want to bring up this map because in all these places where coal was mined and where the fracking is going on, fracking is mostly in the northwestern New Mexico again. These are places where uranium is in the ground. Oh, and there was a big, huge fire in 2016 people don't know about. So lots of issues with the fracking. But my focus today is uranium. So keeping in mind where all this extraction is happening, like especially in South Dakota and other places where uranium is also present, we're having the mixture of both extracting coal and radioactive elements, which is not good. Breathing in radon gas and all the health effects are really important for folks to know about, but I'm not going to touch on that today. My focus is really to explain why nuclear is a false solution. And this uh, info graphic shows it doesn't have everything weapons is missing but it kind of shows from cradle to grave from uranium to the power plant so we have all these different steps several of them are in new mexico and the big thing is right here at the power plant this is where they measure the carbon footprint of nuclear only here so this is mostly steam and radiation and heat so temperature heat radiation heat and hot temperature heat which contributes to global warming but anyways all of this beginning what we call the front end none of that is counted in the carbon footprint of nuclear and most importantly the waste is also not counted which will be radioactive for essentially millions of years and we have to safeguard it we have to watch it and and all of that the transportation everything that is not counted in the carbon footprint because it's just convenient for them not to count the carbon footprint of forever. So, so this is the most toxic radioactive stuff on the planet. It comes from uranium. These are some slides I don't have time to go through, but there's a lot of abandoned mines in the country, 15,000 that need to be cleaned up. One area is Church Rock, New Mexico. But the background of uranium and the processing and all the leftover contamination that we have to deal with has not been dealt with. The United States left 15,000 abandoned mines across the country. There's no law to clean them up. And right here, you can see most of that uranium came out of the West, some in Texas, a little bit in the East Coast, not really much. But if you look at this map that shows all of the nuclear power plants, this is where they used the uranium to make electricity. And as you can see, there's not a lot in the West. However, now they want to get rid of the waste because it's really dangerous and it's like the most toxic stuff on the planet. So all these communities where there's high, a high population, mostly white communities in the East Coast, they want to get rid of this stuff. So they're trying to, you know, bring it back to the West, specifically Southeast New Mexico and Texas. So we're fighting this. The Texas site just got licensed uh, last month. The New Mexico site will probably be licensed in January. So we're fighting this. The state is fighting this. But yeah, we really need people's help. And again, if you look at this map, all those little white lines, this is all fracking country. This is called the Permian Basin. We already got one waste dump here called WIP. WIP is a weapons waste dump. What I'm talking about is waste from nuclear energy. So this is the proposal for one site, which is the largest in the world. And this is the other one in Texas. So these are the two sites, 40 miles apart, 
just north of uh, an already existing site um, that also wants to expand. Um, but it's all within a, you know, lots of unstable area. These are all the reasons why we say no. It's technically illegal under federal law. Lots of opposition. But yeah, this is why nuclear is a false solution. There's absolutely no place to put the waste. And there's really no work toward just equitable and, and that kind of process towards finding a solution. So a friend of mine, we're working together to build resistance against this. And we'd love to have indigenous people representing their communities fighting any parts of the nuclear fuel chain. We would love for you to join us to build our resistance against nuclear colonialism. Well, for us, it's still uh, Anishinaabe sovereignty. It's still unceded territory. We have rights uh, in those territories. And, you know, they were they are supposed to be protected by uh, the Canadian Constitution. Uh, article 35 is an article coming from that Constitution. And it says that, un- you know, people who have rights should be protected. You know, I, I don't have all the article, but I can tell you that this is something that's written in this Constitution that is used in Canada. So, you know, the, the dams that we're trying you know, the, the, the land and the water that we're trying to protect uh, for the next generation uh, is something that needs to be, you know, do. We need to protect those lands and waters because it's going to be for the next generations to use them. The water that we drink uh, probably are contaminated. I'll give you an example. We have this small community that's called Kitsakik. And they live beside one of those dams. Not a big one, but it has a lot of impact on their communities and peoples. They don't have running water. They don't have electricity. And here we are in 2021. And governments, the modern color or the, you know, where they come from, they came and they went to see the community. Everyone said, it's so sad, it's so sad. But not, nothing is done for the, the people over there that live beside those dams. And, you know, the Quebec government and this Hydro-Quebec uh, organization, or the state-owned organization, is always using the same strategy. You know, dividing conquer strategy also is still working nowadays. doesn't matter where you stay. It's still the same old way of doing things. Uh, the colonizers are, is always right. The colonizers is always, you know, doing the good thing for them poor little Indians. You know, that's how they think. That's how they see it. That's how they work with most of our peoples. And this needs to change. It doesn't matter where you stay. It's in the States or here in Canada or in Quebec, whatever the place. We need to have a better... Uh, understanding of what's happening all, all over the place. I've heard, uh, you know, the speakers, uh, you know, um, heartfelt uh, messages on the stories. And the Anishinaabeg people, where I'm from, that's my nation's name, and uh, we still have to fight for our rights to be respected. Um, you know, this is, this is wrong. Uh, this is ongoing and we need to make changes.
and we need you people you know to make those changes to, to pave the way and see what alternative we can we can have and use for example we uh, on our side we're planting trees uh, we're having this uh, solar uh, panels or, you know, that we're trying to get uh, for uh, the community solar uh, turbines uh, water turbines uh, for uh, with the sea you know we can use the sea as a free energy we can use those and create safe energy with that and there's a lot of things you know and that uh, contributes to this kind of uh, way of doing things we have also on our side responsibilities the way we use those energy and the way uh, we, we uh, you know we live every day we need to to see how we do it, you know impact and the biodiversity there's a lot of things that we probably we could do on ourselves but you know we need partners also in some of those uh, uh, you know projects that, because we need uh, help from coming from other expertise for example you know and there's a lot of um, I think uh, synergy that we could create uh, amongst our uh, the peoples and nations and but also different organizations coming from uh, different uh, areas uh, we need to have the same language regarding the planet planet earth mother earth like one of those presentations just mentioned mother earth is sick mother earth is in need of uh, a cure but we can do only so much uh, with one community one organization we need to have a large uh, or a larger audience or uh, people that will be involved in some ways in, in their own ways because not everyone can uh, you know, we can do only do so much for ourselves. But, uh, you know, if we um, start looking at each other and see what, you know, what we can do, you know, sharing the information, educating people, educating the language, for example, strategies that within communication, um, we need to also to talk to younger generation uh, to educate them because, they're the ones who's going to have probably more impact than us today. We, they'll be the ones who've been living with the long-term effects in their lives. And, you know, earth and water can endure only so much. So life is water. Life is water. We only can say that so many times, but we need to say it again and again. If we don't have clean water, safe water to drink, no one will survive doesn't matter where we live if we don't have water it's going to be very very hard for every living thing so for me it's not just about hydro dams it's about water also simply because if we don't have you know uh, those uh, you know elements uh, air water uh, earth they're all bound together. And this is a sacred relation that we as First Nations have with uh, Mother Earth and water and all living things. So for us as uh, First Nation peoples, uh, Canada or US, uh, I think that 
we we have some of those solutions that we can bring up and share, but we only can do so much on our side. We need your your voices. We need your your help. Mother Earth needs your help. Yeah. I'll, I'll stop at this uh, this time just to let you know where I'm from. Uh, and my community's name is Lexmo. It's a French name. But then my in my language it's called Shiship Sagigan, meaning uh, uh, Duck Lake in English, I'll say. And uh, I'm uh, one of the uh, 11 communities of Anishinaabek uh, communities. And uh, well, I'm from um, the northeast uh, of Canada in Quebec, the Quebec region. Uh, we're about um, 12,000 Anishinaabek people under uh, different, uh, with those different communities. We have people living outside our communities. But we still use the land. We still go to the land. We still, you know, uh, use uh, in a way that you know respectful uh, all living things in the waters and the land. So we still have very close links to to the to the land. First, I wanted to ask you, what are the strategies that you're developing in your communities to resist these false solutions on the basis of? of the long trajectory of indigenous resistance. So what are the strategies? What are the ways of indigenous resistance? And also, what are the alternatives that are embodied by your communities? What are the real solutions that are put forward by indigenous peoples from hundreds and even thousands of years of, of life waste into the past? Perhaps, Candy, would you like to get us started with those questions? Thank you. Yes, that would be great. I started out talking about a very personal story of my community and now I want to share like you said what work we've been doing so you all may have heard of the Dakota Access Pipeline um, when we went to Standing Rock in 2016 that pipeline is coming from my community in the Bakken where I just shared that information about oil development and that pipeline was going through is going through Standing Rock you remember the dams I showed you in the beginning cutting right across their dam the Oahe Dam which they were also forced to get their drinking water from. So standing in solidarity with um, other Native communities like the Oteti Shakoni. But we all know how that ended. Because we stood up and said, Miniwachoni, water is life, water of life. Because we wanted to fight back against colonizers and colonial systems, we were forcibly removed by our own military in the United States. And this is not uncommon. This happens in other countries, as I'll get into in a little bit here. This next slide is going to be a little bit upsetting. Uh, if you have any children watching, maybe you'll have them look away, um, because I want to show you what they, what they do to us um, here in the United States by shooting at us, using us for target practice. That night, um, um, I'm getting really emotional. Today is October 27th. It is the anniversary of one of the days that we were attacked by our own military. And then in November, again, over 500 people came into our medics. They were all shot either in the face, in the groin, or near their spine intentionally by military forces who said that they were using less than lethal weapons. 
But I also want to recognize my own privilege being here in the United States because um, these things are happening around the world. Yes, we stand up against our political forces and our police forces here in the U.S. in the belly of the beast. I stand up against them as a Native American person because we want to defend the sacred. That what we were just talking about, the sacredness of our air, our land, and our water. And yes, we have not yet shut down the Dakota Access Pipeline. We were forcibly removed and oil is flowing through that pipeline, which incidentally has already had at least three leaks that we know of, um, probably a lot more that they tried to cover up. But internationally, this was brought up. Um, these, these, what's the bigger picture besides one pipeline? So as the Indigenous Environmental Network, we work against this false solutions of carbon markets and carbon trading. This idea of reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, which is pushed within the United Nations. Some of our early work was saying, actually, this is reaping profits from evictions, land grabs, deforestation, and destruction of biodiversity. That's what red projects are. Well, going into this COP now, they're just talking about, um, you know, they've changed the language to be very dangerous language around net zero and pushing for things within Article 6 and talking about how they're going to decrease the emissions in the sky, the carbon dioxide emissions. They don't ever talk about keeping it in the ground. That's not on the agenda at COP26. Fossil fuels mining, uranium industry, these things are not on their agenda. And this is the 26th conference of the parties. And while all of that is happening, these REDS projects, the Amazon rainforest is being destroyed as a result of what they call solutions. This picture shows their solution because what they do is they say, oh, it's okay for us to destroy the lungs of the earth, which is the Amazon rainforest. We can we can clear cut that. Um, and I know that they say that because I meet my friends in these spaces, the United Nations spaces. My friends tell me this is what is happening in our communities, Candy. This is what they're doing to us. They're coming in and they're displacing us and telling us how we're going to operate and how we're going to run. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a short station break. When we return, we will continue with Hoodwinked in the Hot House Part 2, Frontline Voices of Indigenous Resistance Beyond Climate Fault Solutions.
actually on a list of a person who is endangered because of speaking out against injustices in her community around oil and around the industry. She's in the global south and she's still standing up fighting. And I take so much pride and respect in knowing these women and these, these fighters and these warriors. Because even though I have what I showed you happening here in the belly of the beast in the United States, I have a certain privilege just by being here. And we have to lift up our brothers and sisters in the global south, many of whom can't even go to these United Nations conferences, especially this year from being shut out, which is great for the government because they'll try to sneak in anything that they can to continue using carbon trading and carbon offsets as their solution, which is a false solution. And my brothers and sisters in Australia, we've worked with them. I've reached out and I've worked with the Seed Youth Mob in Australia and I've gone there because they were told that fracking in the Northern Territories wasn't gonna upset anything. That all it was was gonna be a hole in the ground the size of a billy can and that they didn't have to worry about fracking. So I went to them and I told them my struggle and my story and they were like, what? The companies lied to us? Yes, because even if you have free prior and informed consent, that doesn't include necessarily the actual reality of what it's gonna look like, what these details mean, the devil is in the details. So they'll lie to communities about REDS projects. They'll lie to communities about fracking coal, uranium and other mining, but then get some person, maybe one or two people on their tribal council or in a leadership position to sign up and therefore they consider it cleared. And so we continue to meet with our aunties in other countries, like my aunties here that I met in Australia fighting to protect country. Meeting with our relatives when I was in Bonn, Germany, who were again fighting a coal plant, a coal, huge mining operation, where they were just clear cutting and destroying and mining and strip mining and destroying lands. So meeting with people and understanding the struggle globally from a local perspective to an international perspective and becoming a sky protector as a result of knowing the truth. There is so much power in the truth and we can all get behind understanding the truth by joining our organizations and doing a little bit of research and going out on the front lines and speaking back about what's happening in our own communities locally, but then also expanding that to work with international organizations like we can Women's Earth Climate Action Network, doing really good work, lifting up women in their stories. Or organizations like Madre, who is amazing, connecting women internationally and bringing us all together to share our stories and our struggles so that we can work collectively. We do things at home, like the water blessing and healing walks that we haven't been able to have because of COVID, but we've had prayer circles uh, virtually. We've gone to DC several times, Washington DC to say, this is not what we want in our communities. Listen to us as indigenous peoples, listen to the stories that we have about how to tackle and combat the climate crisis. We set up teepees on the lawn and make, make ourselves known because we're always facing invisibility here in the United States. Our populations were so decimated by colonization that we now only make up 2% of the population in the United States. So 
we have decided to do a just transition program and curriculum. This is at the Haskell Nations Indian University in Lawrence, Kansas, where we are implementing a just transition program right within our schooling. And we are reaching out to higher institutions to do this as well. We are reaching out to elementary schools to stop brainwashing our kids like I was and to teach our kids what it means to have a transition. And there is no one size fits all. That's what the U.S. tries to do and what the United Nations tries to do is one size fits all is going to save us. And that does not work. We have to do small scale, local distributed actions and education forums. We are building earth lodges in our community again, remembering our culture, bringing back our culture, how we used to live. Sure, this one has a cement floor because it's a modern version that we can use for cultural programming, for teaching our language that, yes, is unfortunately being lost. And it's been a struggle to learn because of the boarding school eras and how our grandparents were beat if they spoke their language by a US government system that actually has a termination era where they tried to kill us, but we survived. Our grandmothers survived and we're still here fighting, trying to find ways for energy to work for us. So small scale distributed systems of power like Lakota Solar Enterprises. Henry Redcloud once told me he knows how to build a solar panel using bone and ash and the sun and a blower in order to create power and energy. And it's not energy of what we're wasting right now. It's not energy to power like cities. This is at Standing Rock where the pipeline, this runs right by where the pipeline runs. So there's a, 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 um, a solar panel array there now. But we need small scale. We need to uplift our communities like native renewables. Because these large-scale corporate schemes in wind and solar, you heard, they're digging out the precious minerals in South America once again to have these giant corporations and to continue to make money about it. That's not what it's about. It's about eat home having its own mode of being able to live in a way that is not just surviving but also thriving but not off the backs of other people. And let's talk about our food systems, because if we can't even feed ourselves, we're not truly sovereign nations. We need to be able to either have small scale gardens or large scale gardens and remember how to grow our own food. If our soil is contaminated, we can't do that. Our indigenous principles of just transition show um, these booklets that we have. We can go on ienearth.org and you can actually look into the booklet yourself and make it make sense for your community. This is one of the projects that we're working on as the Indigenous Environmental Network to show what a just transition might look like in our communities. We are having basket making sessions in our communities where my husband was able to help organize a three-day workshop to relearn our culture and use our own baskets instead of plastics, for example, in our community, because this is what we used to do a long time ago. And this is what makes sense for us. We are able to bring community members together to relearn our culture, to laugh and to tell stories, to grow small scale community gardens, which are able to produce enough crops. Our communities are small <laughs> so that we can roast and dry enough corn to give every elder in our community this year one bag, 
one bag of corn and beans. So every elder was able to grow, um, to, to make their own corn soup, one of our traditional foods. And we want, and, and we're going to grow that project. That's part of our just tradition work. And it is for the next seven generations. If we don't speak for them, who will? These suits at the conference in the United Nations? No. Our kids are sacred. Our kids are precious. Just like all of the four-legged and the winged and those that swim in the waters, they need us to be the voice for them. If we don't speak for them, who will? That's the work that we do at the Indigenous Environmental Network with our allies as a whole, the It Takes Roots Coalition, who now has our hoodwinked in the Hot House pamphlet that you guys saw and you can get online to talk about all of the false solutions and to call them out. And we're doing it because it's common sense, because we collectively as humanity, humanity need to save ourselves. Matsuki odds, everybody. I'll stop there. Um, thank you. A humble thank you, uh, Candy. Uh, Leona, would you like to share the the ways in which your communities and organizations are resisting, and and how they're how they embody actual real solutions? Um, yeah, I can, I can try. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure about. Uh, you know, we're we're working on real solutions, and I'm going to share my screen again and elaborate on the, one of the. Um, slides I skipped over. This is actually uh, not my personal story, but this is some of the work I'm engaged in right now is this uh, this issue of abandoned uranium mines. So earlier I mentioned there's 15,000 in the country uh, with no law to clean them up. So basically anybody right now, I would ask people in the U.S. who are feeling okay to call your Congress uh, representative or senator um, I put a, a link in the chat about RICA, which is the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, but you can talk to your elected officials. I encourage everyone to call them and, and tell any elected official that you are close to or not even close to, just any story today. A lot of them are on the federal level, they're on the national level, um, and, and, and any number of them you can call your representatives and just tell them, I'm really concerned about what Candy talked about. I'm really concerned about dams or uranium or nuclear um, because we really need people to call those folks in Congress. And so the stories, the two things I'm going to share, um, you can contact me. Um, I got one of my colleagues, Jesse Dierenwater, um, manning the chat or or watching the chat. Um, excuse my language, I don't want to be hetero patriarchal, but um, anyway, so this is a map that I wanted to, to just highlight uh, this, this specific community. Um, so I'm going to share a couple slides, it shouldn't take too long. This is the site of the world's largest uranium spill. So this is close to uh, Gallup, New Mexico, which is a border town of the Navajo Nation and New Mexico. Um, and it's in a place called Church Rock. Well, technically it's north of Church Rock. Um, this is in a place called Redwater Pond Road Community. So right here, I know it's hard to see, but there's some little little uh, white, you can see uh, some structures here. These white squares represent houses. So this is a, a community that lives there still today. Some of them were moved out. They were bought out by the EPA to move them out of here. Um, again, divide and conquer. So there's a uranium mine here 
And then there's two minds on this other side, one mind here and another one off the picture. But the community literally lives between two um, uranium mines. And then just down the road, a uranium uh, mill site. So just to fast forward, this company, United Nuclear Corporation, it's now owned by General Electric. Um, they were mi uh, mining here, and then they were processing here, and their waste was stored right here. In 1979, in the morning of July 16th, which is the same day as the first atomic test, which is really weird because it was at the same time and the same day, 5.30 in the morning, July 16th. Um, this, this, uh, the waste was being held with the dam that broke. So all of that radioactive waste, it got into the environment. And then through this little ditch here, it reached a river that transported over 90 million gallons of waste over 100 miles into Arizona. It's never been cleaned up, never been studied. So fast forward to today, General Electric is, um, they have to clean up the site. So they're proposing to move the mine waste from, from here, a million cubic yards. They want to pile it on top of where this old waste was. And the community's like, hey, there was a big flood, uh, a big spill a few years ago. This is all a floodplain. What happens with climate change? And if there's another big flood, you're setting up a second big accident. So um, just to show you a couple pictures of the community, they're very active. They bring attention to this issue every year. And, and sometimes elected officials show up. Not a lot has been done. Just this week, the Navajo Nation is calling on a congressional hearing about this and what people can do. Um, so again, the cleanup would be from moving the mine waste from here on top of this other waste pile here. And the options are, do you want us to make a conveyor belt or do you want us to truck it? There's no option of not doing this and having a different plan. The, 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 the cherry on top of this uh, kind of horrible situation is that the more, more radioactive waste, they'll move to an indigenous community um, in Utah, which, which is the plan right now. And Paul No is an organization I work with. We're trying to stop this. Um, so you can go to our website for how to and comments and all of that. But just going back to the other waste issue, Jesse Deerenwater is someone who lives near a new, sorry about that, in, in Detroit. So you can go to his website, nfermi.now.org. We're fighting this nuclear issue on the uranium end and the nuclear um, power plant end, and we're inviting other indigenous communities anywhere in the middle impacted by uranium or nuclear to join us. For example, with this proposal for the waste dumps here in southeast uh, New Mexico and Texas, the transport would be by rail. So nationally, everybody is kind of at risk if you live near a railroad. So this BNSF railroad goes by two of our sacred mountains. As Dinette people, I'm really concerned if there was an accident that might permanently contaminate our, our sacred mountains. And of course, our water and our health and all of that. But this is one of the reasons I'm really concerned. So I'm just inviting people to join us. You can email us at nnuclearcolonialism at gmail.com. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Remember to visit our website, sotrueradio.org, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at sotrueradio. And this is your host, Margaret Prescott. And y'all, please remember to stay safe.